Um, let's go ahead and read the Word of God right there in Matthew chapter 8. If you want to notice Matthew 8, 18, um, verse 18 of Matthew chapter 8. When Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. Now flip over to chapter 9 of Luke. Luke chapter 9. Look all the way down to the end of the chapter, verse 57. Luke chapter 9, verse 57, the Bible says, And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. And he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said in verse 60, Let the dead bury their dead. But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at my home or at my at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. I'm going to read that last passage there. No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you this morning. We thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for the folks here today, Lord, that come to worship you, Lord. Here we are to worship you, Lord. Help us to, to lift up our voices to you, lift up our hearts to you in song and sermon. Lord, help us to bow to the text this morning, Lord. Help us to, to submit to you as our King, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Savior, and our very best friend. Lord, we love you, Lord, and we thank you that you are here with us this morning. Lord, guide us as we as we look into this text, Lord. Meet with us in a very special way. We do lift up the two unspokens this morning, Lord, and we just ask you to do a work that only you can do uh, in, the, in their lives, Lord, and, and, and our, our lives this morning. Lord, we thank you again. Be with the children across the way, the nursery, all that we do today. Lord, may we do it for your glory and for your honor. Lord, help us to, to put you first this morning. Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we just read, please be seated, as we just read through those um, two parallel passages um, containing three, uh, Matthew's got two, and then uh, Luke has three, but the first two are the same, um, we look through these three different potential disciples, three would-be disciples, if you will, um, or, or followers of Christ who would be more into actually following Christ. And there's actually a difference there. There are a lot of people who say they follow Christ, but not to the standards that the Lord sets out, which we will see here uh, this morning. Um, so these are disciples, but they're, they're neglecting their duty to be a true, authentic disciple. Again, some from, from the scribe uh, to the other nameless would-be disciples, you might have picked up, as we read through that, you might have picked up on a certain phrase that describes a couple of them, and a phrase that actually describes too many of us today, too many would-be disciples. In these passages, in both accounts, in Matthew's account and Mark's account, at least the, the, second, the, the latter half of it, um, there are two distinct words, two distinct words that I believe completely capture the attitude of all three of these men, and completely captures the attitude of every would-be disciple even today. What are these two words? Notice, 
Notice our slide up here. Look at verse 21. And there's a couple of verses like this. I just chose this one for a placement. The Bible says, And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. What are these two words? Notice that. Me first. Me first. Let me do something first. You know, when it comes to serving the Lord, we are without a doubt, you and I, we are without a doubt our worst obstacle. We are our own work. We can blame the devil. We can blame the world. We can blame whatever. But we are obstacle number one. It often seems that we are right in the middle of a me-first movement of sorts, and oftentimes the leaders of that me-first movement. Now, this is not one of those passages. I have to be honest. I actually preach some of this to my wife. I'm like, is that going to be too hard? <laughs> I, I, I really, I, I, just to let you know, I, I still preach hard mess. I preach what the Bible says. But I, I put a lot of effort in trying to package those truths where they're not less, but more to understand and, and really see the heart of our Savior. But some of those, you can package all you want. And it's just going to come out as just a hard, cold truth that you have to just, you have to take it. So this is one of those passages, I think. Me first. Again, we are without a doubt our worst enemy. And we are often leading our own me first movement. You know, we can talk about the world. We can talk about all the things, what's going on in the world. But we can't change the world. We can change me. And a me first movement, however is not what it means to be a Christian. Me first should never characterize or, uh, or characterize a follower of Jesus Christ. And all too often, we not only get in our own way, but in that me first mindset, we get in the way of others. Whether it's church attendance, Christian fellowship, attitudes in the workplace, or even attitudes at home, a me first attitude doesn't generally bring sunshine into the room when that person walks in. I don't think I've ever heard someone say that they were having a bad day until that me first guy walked into the room. He just brightened my day up. It usually doesn't happen that way. No believers are to be firm but kind. Um, we are not to bend to the ways of the world, but we are not to be hateful in that not bending. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul clarifies a bit on what it means to be the opposite of a me-first follower of Christ. In fact, you cannot have any, any of me in our fellowship, followership and our discipleship of Jesus. But in Philippians chapter 2, to, Christian, Paul writes, to Christians, Paul writes this, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Other people first, not me first. Verse 4, he says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind, this type of thinking, be in you. Why? Because it was also in Christ Jesus. He put others first. I mean, if any man walked this planet who could put me first, it would certainly be Jesus, but he put others first. He gave his life putting others first. We are to put Jesus first, and then others. And he is, of course, our example you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus taught, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, He didn't mean me first and then the kingdom. He didn't say, take care of me first and then go serve Jesus. No, we're to seek Him first. It wasn't just words when Jesus taught, He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. 
That is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Or even more direct in Matthew 10, 38, which we haven't got to yet in our studies here, but Jesus said, He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is worthy of me. What does it mean? What, 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 do you, what does one do with a cross? They crucify themselves. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. So it's not me first. It's carry my cross first. True Christ-like discipleship is not me first. It's Jesus first. And here in our text this morning, it's ever so clear in this passage that it's Jesus first. The Lord here highlights three obstacles. There are many more, but there are three obstacles. All of them are rooted in me and self. Three obstacles to discipleship. Three potential barriers, if you will, to true Christ-like discipleship. Again, as a, as a pastor, I, I want to do my very best to convey the texts that are in this book here, in this, this blessed Bible here, and, and, and to show the world, to show you what, what God has given me to share. And, and at the end of the day, we're all, we're really all in the same. We're all in the pews together, if you will. We're all equals. We're all, we're all redeemed children of God. And I heard a pastor say this past, um, this past week, um, he was out inviting one of his church folks to come back to church. And the, the person on the other end of the conversation says something along the lines of, I'll be there to support you pretty soon, Pastor. And, and, and it was kind of like walking away to do that. And he just grabbed him. It's like, I mean, I appreciate that, but church is not for me. You don't come for me. You come for you. You come for Jesus. You need this. God doesn't need this church to be filled. We need this church to be filled. We need to worship Jesus Christ. He doesn't need the church. He redeemed the church. He went and bought the church with his own blood. We need him. We come here to worship, yes. That is number one. That's topic number one. We must worship Jesus Christ. In fact, I believe that so much that if we come with a heart of worship, I can get up here and ramble all kinds of nonsense from the Bible. If it's from the Bible, you're going to be fed because you came to worship. You come with a heart wide open, God's going to fill it with his word. Wide open for worship. So as we look at these barriers, as we, as we leave these walls, this is the church. As we leave these walls, we go out into the world, and we are to be his disciples. But there are often, many times, if not all the time, many barriers to being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Notice some of these here in our text. Look at verse 19 of Matthew 8. It states, A certain scribe said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Notice first that Jesus did not deny this person from following him, but he did clarify what following Jesus looks like. He encouraged this man, the scribe, to kind of count the cost, really. Have you really counted the cost? True labors are few in ministry, without a doubt, but authentic discipleship is not a whimsical endeavor. It's not something we take lightly. We must, as Jesus points out here, we must recognize the obstacles to our discipleship. And I think an easy application from this text, from this passage there in, eight, in 19 and 20, is that we must recognize, get this now, finance as an obstacle to our discipleship. Finance is an obstacle to serving Jesus Christ. At first you may wonder, how in the world did I get that? Well, I am, I am 
very attentive and very um, cautious about having my outline be seen in the text. Because if it's not seen in the text, then it's just my outline and there's no power in that. Um, so that's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Because every sermon and every point in every sermon should be sourced in the text. Again, otherwise without power. So considering that we are far removed from first century Palestinian culture and have little to do with foxholes, and not in the military sense, but a little to do with foxholes and bird nests, Jesus' words have to do with quality of life. Somewhere to sleep. Somewhere to have a roofer under your head. So an easy reference, if you will, if we can ratchet that up one, we, it's an easy reference to money and those things that provide houses and homes and beds and stuff like that. And this morning, I want to say that this sermon is not necessarily a sermon on giving. It's not a, it's not a sermon on money. But let me say this, as we, since we're here. Christians ought to be the most generous people on the planet. We ought to be the most generous people on the planet because we have freely received the greatest gift that can ever be given, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And I realize that money in many churches can be a sore topic, but discipleship is not rooted in money. Discipleship is not rooted in giving. Giving is actually rooted in discipleship. This church here at Home Foods Baptist Church, we don't operate solely on uh, or anything outside. You know, everything we get here is, is here. It's, it's given by faith. Praise the Lord. And I think that's the way a church should operate. It's not about money. It's not about giving. Because again, raising money, even, even collecting funds for our missions, it's, it's just for an end to support the gospel. So raising money is not our goal. Jesus is our goal. And in fact, if if I ever get to a point where I kind of lose that, get rid of me. Find somebody else to pastor this church because it's important to keep our Savior first. Jesus is our goal. And to be honest, I'm convinced the more I preach this book, the more our faith is increased, the more God will lead His people to give what needs to be given. I think it's that simple. I don't think, I think I can go 10 years without even mentioning the word money, but preach this book and the church still will be all right. Because God works through people, and God works through their hearts. I heard a message one time by the former pastor here, Pastor Renick, and um, he was telling me, he preached a message, I don't know, out of Leviticus. I, I don't know where he's preaching at. And one of the people came after me, he's like, Pastor, that's the best message I've ever heard on tithing. And he's like, I don't think I mentioned tithing at all. But praise God, you know, God just used that, you know. And it had nothing to do with money. But I think God works that way sometimes if we're ready to receive it. Again, the more this book is preached, the more we're going to be doing what God wants us to do. My job as a pastor, one of my jobs is just to make those needs known. Uh, and probably the greatest lesson I've learned to continue to put this, this, this subject here to bed here this morning, the greatest lesson I've ever learned about money is that it all belongs to God anyway. I'm just called to be a faithful steward. It doesn't belong to me. Nothing I have belongs to me. It's all His. And when I fail to understand that principle, my finances, my finances become an obstacle. When I forget that it's all His, and it's all mine. We talked about a couple weeks ago about you know, the giving principle. If I give with my hands wide open, God can come and give and take as He pleases. But if we hold on to things like this, God can't. You don't, you're not giving, but nor are you receiving God's blessings. When we fail to understand that it all belongs to God, our finances become an obstacle. Finances. And not just money itself. For Again, having money is not evil. Even as a church, we can do more with money. But with money, as we see in the text here, money comes provision. With money comes stability, security, sustainment. These, these are good things. Having money gives us a roof over our heads and a bed to sleep. Good things. But these, or anything that money can provide, are not the most important things. 
For Jesus himself did not have a home. Jesus did not have a bed. There was no rental contract with his name on it. Nor did he carry a pillow when he traveled. If you do that, no problem. <laughs> Even if you have your name on a rental contract, it's okay. So, Because having these things are not bad. They are blessings. And they are benefits of our labor. But the willingness to go without those things is exactly what Jesus challenged this would-be disciple. That's exactly what he talked about. In essence, when this man said that he was willing to follow Jesus anywhere, our Lord kind of responded with, are you sure? Really? Remember the rich man, he came and says, you know, I will follow you anywhere. You know, keep the commandments. I, this I've done, so it's not you. Okay, sell all you got and give it to the poor. Never, never, never mind. I don't want that. So this man comes to Jesus and says, I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus, in my understanding, are you sure? Have you really counted the cost? You could go without a place to sleep tonight. Are you ready for that? And I think the application for us is to understand that while the provisions we have acquired through our finances are indeed blessings, we are not to let them keep us from serving God. You know, when I left the army, the, the ability to provide for my family of five at that time, now, I'm still a family of five, but all my children are grown up, the ability to provide for my family as a preacher was certainly a concern. And, and for a while, I, I honestly tell you that I fretted about those logistics for a while. Oh, now what about this and what about that? Do I need a job? So I tried to count the cost as best, as, as best I could, but there were just too many unknowns. What do I do when I get to Germany? Can I, can I even work on the economy? I, mean, I didn't know any of those things. Is the church enough? Can they take care of my family? But in the end, I really just had the resolve to just trust Jesus. Just trust Jesus. It wasn't an easy decision for me or my wife, but it was the right decision. And from this passage here, I think there are, there are two things we can learn. First, do never tell Jesus you will follow him without putting him before your finances, without putting him before what your finances can provide. And don't let your finances be an obstacle to following Jesus. He can and does provide. I am proof positive many of you are as well. Putting finances or what finances can provide before Christ is not a mark of Christian discipleship. It's a mark of me-first discipleship. When we put anything, including our finances, before God, it is me-first and not God-first. For some, finance as an obstacle deals with, for most of us probably, deals with money management. But for others, the obstacle could clearly be a lack of finances where one cannot afford a roof or a bed. But in either case, Jesus must be first. That's the message here. That's the message. Put Jesus before your finances. Matthew then introduces another disciple in verse 21 who said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father, to whom Jesus responds with, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Follow me and let the dead bury their dead. You know, I was talking to a man just the other day, last week I think, whose words... We're almost word for word out of this. And it's kind of unique that the Lord just allowed me to have that conversation. But this individual had a desire to do something significant, but he feared that something would happen to his parents in his absence, so he, would, he, chooses, he chose not to go. For this gentleman, his desire was really just a, a leisure trip, but he didn't want to be away from his parents for that long because they're, they're up in age. And, you know, there are scores 
thousands, probably not, probably millions of would-be disciples of missionaries who have failed to overcome that same factor. And I think this is easily called fear as an obstacle, fear of the unknown or fear of whatever it may be. Scores of missionaries sitting in their home churches failing to go out and do what God's called them to do out of fear, out of fear. But like finances, I want to say that fear is not always a bad thing. A healthy fear of heights can keep you alive. Oftentimes, fear forms a natural barrier that keeps us from doing really ridiculous things. So fear is an emotion that is a part of our nature. But while fear can keep us from doing those silly things, it can also keep us from doing great things. It could keep us from doing great things for God. If I was afraid to come over here or, or think of something greater than me, if Charles Spurgeon was afraid to leave the country and move to London and pastor Metropolitan Baptist Church, we would never have the witness that England had during that time. If D.L. Moody just was afraid to go to Chicago or um, his Sunday school teacher, Tur Turnbull or whatever his name is, that led him to the Lord, that's, I don't think that's his right name, when he was like eight years old. This man it was a, a, a Sunday school teacher his whole life. And at 60 or 70 years old, he led young D.L. Moody to the Lord. What if he was just too afraid to share the gospel? We, wouldn't, we would not have a D.L. Moody. And on and on and on we can go with these, these examples. Don't let fear keep you from doing great things for God. The me first movement for the man in verse 21 was the fear of not being able to be there for his father. To bury his father. A few things are noteworthy here. Jesus did not teach, nor is it required of us as his disciples, to forego the funerals of our fathers or to neglect the responsibility to take care of our loved ones. That's not the point here. And in fact, Jesus would later chastise the Pharisees in Matthew 15 because they were teaching that the Jews should dishonor their father and mother because some of the young Jews were paying money to help their parents see ends meet in their, older, in their elderly years. And the Pharisees went to the young people, you don't need to do that. Give your funds to the temple. God will honor it more. Jesus called them out, called them hypocrites. So Jesus chastised them. So Jesus wants us to take care of our family. And it's also highly unlikely in this, in this passage here that this man's father just passed away. And this man here, this would-be disciple, is like on his way. I mean, he's, he's walking to the funeral, if you will, and he sees Jesus. Oh, hey, let, let me go do this, and I'll, I'll come follow you. I don't think that's the case either. History tells us, even some references in the Bible tell us, that for one reason or another, maybe even because of the heat, it was very much custom for the Jews to bury their dead the day they died. So that day would be a very emotional, busy day. Probably no time to get away from family requirements. So it's more likely that this man's father was still alive and that this would-be disciple is simply not following Jesus for fear of his father's untimely death. Maybe his father's in his 70s. Well, he might die before he's 80. I, I can't follow you, Lord. I need to be here for that. This would-be disciple is simply, again, not following Jesus for fear of his father's untimely death, whether it's a month, a week, or a decade away. Fear of the unknown kept this man from following Jesus Christ. Notice that the opinion or emotion of the man's father was not part of the equation. This man's reason for not following was rooted not in his father's opinion, but in self, in self-importance, like I need to be there or it won't happen right. 
Yes, the reason he gave for not following was his father, but his dad had really nothing to do with his choice. His reason was cloaked in dad first, but it was really me first. Me first. It was his fear that kept him from serving, not dad's fear. He argued that dad needed him. Jesus argued for a greater reason. Look at verse 16, or Luke chapter 9, verse 16. Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury their dead. Same as Matthew, but Luke adds in that next phrase, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Let the dead bury their dead. Let, let those, take, those people take care of your father. You need to go preach the kingdom of God. So Jesus wasn't telling him to forsake his sonly duties, but that those responsibilities, his responsibility as a child, are not to be used as a reason to forsake his responsibilities to the kingdom of God. Furthermore, there is no indication anywhere in Scripture that suggests a disciple of Jesus Christ should not or should dishonor his parents by not going to the funeral. There's nowhere in, in Scripture. But to the contrary, the Bible tells us, teaches us, Jesus, God, the Father, all that. Thou shalt honor thy father and mother. So this man feared that his father's future burial would be neglected in his absence, while the kingdom to which he claimed to be a part of as a disciple lay neglect in the present. Do we get that? So he's putting off something that a maybe might happen. My, my father might need me in the future. I need to be here for that. I don't want to neglect him 10 years from now. Jesus is saying, you're neglecting the kingdom right now. Don't use that for an excuse not to preach the gospel. Don't use that for an excuse not to follow me. Follow me and let the dead bury their dead. In other words, fear of what may happen or fear for lack of control should not keep us from preaching the kingdom of God. It should not keep us from following the Lord Jesus Christ. Fear should never keep us from doing great things for God. And then notice our next potential obstacle there in Luke chapter 9. And I have to admit this is probably the most difficult one for me. Look at verse 61 of Luke chapter 9. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at my house, at, at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. In verse 61, we again, we again see those two unfortunate words. Me first. Me first. Let me go. Let me first go, says the would-be disciple. Let me first go and bid farewell to those at my home. So we saw finances this morning. We saw fear as an obstacle. And then lastly, strangely, maybe surprisingly, we see family as an obstacle. Family as an obstacle. Now it's worth saying that Jesus is not against family. He is not against family any more than he's against properly placed fear or properly managed finances. But he is against dishonesty. And he is against things being out of order. Furthermore, family was designed by God. Family is God's idea. It's rooted in Genesis chapter 1. It's God's idea. And therefore, it is not to be used as an obstacle to serving God. So God gives us the, the, the institution of marriage and family and this, this um, would-be disciple is using that institution, that God-given institution, as a reason not to follow God who gave the institution. Family was designed by God, but, and it's not to be used as an obstacle to serving God, 
but as an enabler for kingdom work. And, and it should enable us to be an all-in follower of Jesus Christ, not keep us from serving God. But here in the text we find a man who tells God in the flesh, I will follow thee. I don't think these are words Jesus takes lightly. I will follow thee. I will follow thee after I first go home and say goodbye, as if Jesus required him to cut all ties with those in his house. At first, we, we have to admit that this seems like a reasonable request, right? Hey, let's go to the store together. Yeah, let me, let me grab my wallet, whatever. So it seems maybe like a reasonable request. I mean, rarely do missionaries even today leave their, for their respective fields without going by and saying bye, without having a farewell get-together. I certainly had one of those. But considering how Jesus responded to this man, there was more in his heart than just a mere farewell. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have responded as such. There was more in his heart than just a mere farewell and then off to serve Jesus. Therefore, we see again a still me-first discipleship. Now, there are a number of possible reasons, a number of possible reasons this man had in his mind for returning home first. And we don't know any of them. But they're all served, they're all sourced in self and not kingdom. Self-service, not kingdom service. But let's give us let's give a couple couple examples here. Maybe he knew that if he went home before committing to follow Jesus fully, maybe his wife would talk him out of it. Maybe his wife would give him a good reason not to follow Jesus. And we can say the same thing. If a wife comes home today and maybe she wants to get you know, a reason from her husband not to follow Jesus. Or maybe in this guy's mind, he figured that before he would make a commitment to follow Jesus, he would see if any of his family would go with him. And if nobody would go with him, he would think, man, well, maybe that's crazy and that would be his way out and he wouldn't follow Jesus at all. Or maybe he was embarrassed to follow Jesus in front of his family and just told Jesus that so that he would he can buy some time. I'll follow you, but let me, go, let me go take care of some things. Let me go break the news to my family over the rest of my life, and then I'll follow you. Or worse yet, maybe this man had no intention at all to follow Jesus, but told what some would today call a white lie, so he can save face in the crowd of those other followers around him. I mean, think about that. You run in somebody in the store. Hey, you should come over this Friday. Uh, l- let, me, let me talk to my wife first, right? So you can go home and maybe not even respond to that invitation at all. Or, hey, my, one of my favorites. Hey, I'd like to see you in church this week. Oh, yeah, let me, let me, I don't know, let me talk to my wife. Let me, let me run that by my son. He, sometimes he likes it. He's 12 or eight, or four. You know, there's all kinds of reasons. Maybe this man had no intention at all, but just gave an excuse just to get out of that moment. But all of those scenarios truly scream me first, not Jesus first. Judging again by our Lord's response, it's also possible that his family occupied the place in his heart that should be reserved for God. So there's a place in his heart that should be occupied by God, and he's got family there. Jesus wanted this man to follow him without reservation. Jesus wants you today to follow him without reservation. And for the record, Jesus does not call men from their wives or wives from their husbands. Marriage is, again, God's idea, not ours. But he does demand that his followers put their relationships in the proper order. Even as far back as Abraham, 
God makes this clear. In Genesis chapter 12, God speaks. He says, The Lord said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and even from thy father's house, God called Abraham. But verses 4 and 5 follow and say, So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and took Sarah his wife with him. He also took Lot. He also took his father, actually, but his father died before he got there. So God doesn't necessarily call disciples to leave their families but He most definitely calls disciples to lead their families. God does not bless us with families so that we could use them as an obstacle not to serve Him. God blesses us with families because He's a great God. He's a wonderful God who expects us to bring up our families in a nurture and admonition of the Lord in order to serve and worship the Lord. And by the way, our immediate family is our first ministry anyway. But in our ministering to them, we are not to forsake our walk with the Lord. Our love for family cannot supersede our love for Jesus. Service to family is incredibly important, hard to be overstated, but it should never compete with our service to the King. Granted, kingdom work includes family work, but the order of importance is very significant. In other words, we are, we are not to waver, we're not to vacillate between the preeminence of our family and the preeminence of our Christ, of, of Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, Colossians 1.18 states that He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. In how many things? All things. And Jesus said in Luke 9.62, that last passage, the last verse there in that chapter, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's some bold words. That's a bold word. Maybe I've read over that thing maybe a hundred times and oh, that's, that's tough. Maybe one day I'll, I'll dig into that. They are some bold words. And the only way to understand this verse truly is in context. And it's Jesus here likens plowing to discipleship and looking back to using our family as an object to, to serve, as an obstacle to serving God. Notice, notice the verse up here. I got it kind of laid out here. Here's the two verses here. So he said, Lord, I will follow thee. And you, I mean, there are verses, right? It's, it's Jesus' direct response to this individual. I will follow thee. And Jesus' response to that part is no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit. So putting his hand to the plow is synonymous with following Jesus, right, in this context. But then you look on, let me first go bid them farewell, and Jesus connects it to looking back. So bidding his family farewell, Jesus, is, Jesus puts it synonymous with looking back. I'm going to read those two verses again. Another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at my house or at home at my house. And Jesus said unto them, No man, having put his hand to the plow, and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Following is plowing, and going back is looking back. It's as if this man made a choice to follow Christ. He made a choice to follow Christ and lead his family, only to return home and live like the man he was before he followed Christ. I mean, get that. So he's, he's at a home. He runs into Jesus. Jesus says, this, and he's already, I mean, think about that. If you're going to go and tell Jesus you're going to follow him, and let's just say you're, you're, you're the leader of your home, and you, you kind of want that, at least in my mind, like when I went to Germany, when the Lord called us over here, I didn't, 
I didn't expect to come by myself. <laughs> I expected to leave my family here, right? So if I'm going to say I'm following Jesus as this individual is, you must assume the family's kind of on board, right? So at least let's assume that for a moment. So the family's on board. This, this, this disciple goes to Jesus, says, I will follow you. And he said, well, let me go get them first. He, I don't think he had any intention of coming back. Again, following is plowing in this passage here, and going back is looking back. Again, it's as if this man made a choice to follow Christ only to return home and live like the man he used to be without Christ. And for he who does this, Jesus boldly states that he's not fit for the kingdom. That's a hard but important truth. Jesus does not accept half-hearted discipleship. He does not want any part in it. He doesn't want 80%, 90%, 99%. He wants all. He must be your all. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. Now, to be clear, discipleship is not synonymous with salvation. This message is for believers. Being unfit for the kingdom, therefore, has to do with service. The Christian life, if, just put it this way, the Christian life is about salvation, sanctification, and service. Salvation is by grace through faith. Sanctification is growth through faith. And service is giving by faith of your time, talent, treasure, and of your temple. And for any of those areas to work, Christ must be preeminent. He must be at the top. He must be the first and even the last, his own category. And to be, quite, to be quite honest, none of us are fit to be in the kingdom, much less serve in the kingdom. So get this now, it is, it is by grace through faith that we enter the kingdom. It is by grace through faith we grow in the kingdom. And it is by grace through faith that we serve in the kingdom. I was sharing this with my wife and she said, well, who in the world's fit to be in the kingdom? Nobody. Nobody. We're not even fit to serve Him. We're fit to be in it because we put our faith in Jesus Christ and He's fit. We, we are brought into the kingdom as Christians, as children of God, redeemed. And then as we serve the kingdom, we must stay 100% in. Once we start losing our... I mean, think about... Anybody ever plowed before? I've, when I was real young, I plowed one of those one... It was still gas. You probably have, right? So we had one of those, one of those electric things, or, or gas, and it had like one plow, one furrow, I guess they're called. And you know, if you do this, you won't be straight anymore. Yes. Not a, not a lawnmower. <laughs> but a lawnmower works. So say you're cutting the grass, and you take your hand off and start looking back. Are you going to have any straight lines anymore? Probably not. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Be all in. Be all in. Those who are not all in need to repent and get back. Put both our hands back on the wheels and drive for Jesus. And these three obstacles, family, finances, and fear. Family, finances, and fear. They're probably the top three barriers that keep missionaries off the field. They're the top three barriers that keep Christians from being fully committed to serving God. 
These three obstacles are likely also the top three reasons missionaries come off the field. It's usually money, family, or fear. Top three reasons. And the top reasons why Christians fall away from serving God completely. It's top, top three. Don't let your family be a reason for serving the king. Be an obstacle to serving the king. We are to lead our families in the service of the king. Do not let fear keep you from being a follower of Jesus Christ. Let fear propel you to do great things for God. And do not allow finances or the lack thereof prevent you from serving God. Trust that He will provide. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all those things will be added unto you. You know, the world, the world, is, the world is full of me-first disciples. Full of them. Churches are full of me-first disciples. And in their service to God, they rarely amount to anything for God. Let each of us make a decision today to be a disciple who, with a strong mind this morning, we make a decision to put Jesus first. A cognizant decision to put Jesus first. It will not happen any other way. It has to be a decision. Put Jesus first.